talk is going to be Dealing with Distress, A Doctor's Guide to Survival. It's not just for doctors, although mostly doctors are here. It's for everyone, really, based on my own experiences. So I'm going to use myself as a case study, what they would call an autoethnographic exemplar, meaning that I would talk about myself in relation to the medical culture. I'm not going to go too deep into myself, but I will be talking about um, burnout and my experiences of burnout throughout my career. Um, I graduated from Aberdeen University and then went and worked at Emiri Hospital, which was a very uh, tough working environment, as I'm sure you guys would agree. Excellent environment, but also a bit tough. Um, the shifts were very different from what I was used to. It was very uh, competitive and I found it very inspiring. But at the same time, I don't feel like I was equipped with the right tools to be able to handle it at the time. Now, of course, having finished my PhD and worked as a counselor and four years of medical work, I feel better able to deal with it. And that's why I think it's so important to share our experiences here, to have a reflective environment, as I would like to talk about later, where we can just explore how we feel. So it was a learning experience. I also, towards the end of my PhD, experienced another episode of burnout. That time I had the formula right, you know, I had hobbies, I had friends, I was into nature and I had other interests other than just medical school. And I think in medical school, it's not uh, focused on enough, the fact that we need to have a life and be happy as well. So I think it's interesting to know that it's, it's kind of a very interesting path throughout career from what I find in my experience. Sometimes you're doing fantastically, sometimes you're down, sometimes you're in the middle. It's just how you can ride the waves. It's like surfing, the way I see it, and not to completely drown. Just be okay when you're down and just lift yourself up with the skills that we're gonna talk about. I also think the very interesting thing is to rethink your motivations for doing your job. In counseling, we call it the shadow side. Why do we do what we do? What is it in our past, in our makeup, that make us want to help people? And I think that's a very interesting question that comes up time and time again, especially when you've got your low points. And I think for me, when I first started out as a medical student, all I wanted to do was just save lives and do great and deliver babies. <laughs> and after I got into medical school and with the work that I did, I realized that when I was doing my PhD that I wanted something in addition to saving people. I wanted to actually be passionate about the work that I do, the creative connection, the flexibility, the way I can connect to a client on a deeper level, it was something that really appealed to me. And that's why I think also we really need to examine why we do what we do, because a lot of us are wounded healers. You know, we've all got a history. Everyone has a history um, of pain and loss and uh, shall we say the need to help someone. Not everyone has that, but it does come up a lot amongst the health professions. So a profile of a doctor, and this can be extrapolated to students as well and people who work in corporate environments. However, as we're doing this as part of the Coit Psychiatric Club, thank you for having me, uh, we're talking about doctors for a bit. Intense working hours, exposure to traumatic situations, feelings of helplessness, triggering of our own emotions and history, difficult dealings with family and environment, little support and training, and I think this was mentioned in a tweet today, workplace bullying, which is up to 49%. So that was quite shocking. Yeah, you put it on your Twitter. Because <laughs> there was very little information I could get on it. So I thought that was quite interesting. So I teach a group of students, female paramedics, every week. And I teach them how to cope with their job. They're the first batch of female students who are going to go out into the field 
other women have been trained before them, but it's likely that they will actually be involved. And so I teach them the three R's, resilience, resources, and recovery. And I would suggest it's like a mantra, just every time any situation comes up, resilience, resources, and recovery. So let's talk a bit about resilience. Definition of resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or even significant sources of stress. When we look at resilience in the dictionary or in other places, it's always about bouncing back, but that there's more to it. There's more to it. Rather than just bouncing back, being able to mold yourself and attach yourself to a specific situation and look after yourself in the process. So it's much more complex than that. There are several factors that affect resilience, and these are age, gender, marital status, early experience of violence, and support systems. So there are some protective factors, and these are sense of coherence and resilience to trauma, uh, psychological preparation, just like we do with the students at the Tatbiqi and with you guys, and I would hope that this would continue with other speakers, perhaps from the hospital, perhaps students or other workplaces, and building bases of resilience, creating a reflexive narrative environment. Like we talk about support groups these days, and I think it would be very interesting to create perhaps uh, a silsila of support groups for different people, especially doctors and medical students, and this ability to express feelings and experiences about stressful situations and identify influencing factors about BO, STS, CF, and PTSD. So, BO. <laughs> unlike the most common definition, is going to be burnout, secondary traumatic stress, compassion fatigue, and PTSD. So PTSD, I'm not really gonna focus on that a lot during this talk. I'm gonna focus on the first three. So history of resilience research. It started 40 years ago. A professor, Norman Gormazi, realized that the children of schizophrenic parents did not get ill. Now this is according to his study, right? There's a lot, there are a lot of studies out there, but for the purposes of this talk, this is what I focused on. He realized that the quality of resilience had a greater role in mental health. And this was followed by another group of studies, um, mostly focusing on the Holocaust, because that was one of the biggest um, examples of how people endured very stressful and difficult situations. So Maurice Vanderpool studied the Holocaust, and he was a former president of Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute. He found, number one, that survivors of concentration camps had shields. Now these are metaphorical shields, of course, composed of several factors, sense of humor, critical sense of perspective, and a specific way of viewing the world. It's the dark humor, you know, rather than thinking, oh, we're gonna get out, it's gonna be great, we're gonna leave by Christmas. A lot of the Holocaust survivors used to see it in a different way. Uh, finding number two is the ability to form attachment to others. And finding number three, having that inner psychological space to protect against intrusion of abuse of others. We talk about defenses, we talk about psychological things that keep hurt out. Now these things, a lot of people say don't be defensive and it can be seen as a negative thing. However, defenses are important and integral to our survival and they have uh, a purpose. Now the Search Institute also did another study and this was a study of inner city kids. So why were they more resilient? They found that these kids had an uncanny ability to get others to help them out. They had special abilities to attract others to them. And he talks about, uh, the guy who wrote the study, genetic versus learned resilience. Do we inherit resilience? Can we learn it? This will be discussed in a bit. Empirical evidence, resilience can be learned. So George Valiant, director of study of adult development at Harvard Medical School in Boston, did a study of various groups of people during a 60 year period. Some increased resilience over their lifetimes. 
and some people had resilience from the very beginning. And he found that the people who increased resilience in their lifetimes were actually more, resilience, more resilient than the people who had uh, resilience from the very beginning. So according to Kutu in 2002, what are the characteristics of resilience? Now we're going to go over these and then go over case studies. Yes. Yeah, the people who developed resilience over their lifetime were found to be more resilient than the people who had it at the very beginning. Okay, so characteristics of resilience. Strong acceptance of reality. Remember we talked about people in the concentration camps. We may never get out. Uh, deep and strong root to the belief system. Strong values that life is meaningful. And thirdly, a unique ability to make use of opportunities. So let's go into this a bit deeper. The first one was a strong acceptance of reality. So let's talk about organizational case study. Now Morgan Stanley is a very famous investment bank in America. It was the largest tenant in the World Trade Center and had 2,700 employees on the 22 floors in the South Tower. Now in 9-11, they were able to evacuate one minute after the other tower was hit. Why was that? Because they had a crisis in 1993 that made them think, okay, we've got to be careful. Our position in this tower and what happened was that this is a symbolic center of U.S. commercial power. Our position is vulnerable. We need to make sure that we're protected. So they brought in military personnel to help protect them and write a plan and teach them what to do in a catastrophe. And what happened was that in 9-11, only seven of the 2,700 employees died. The rest were all evacuated. And this is an example of what people can do in times of severe uh, stress is to have that long-term plan, to have that preparation. And this is something that we really do lack in the medical uh, system. There is, I don't think as students that we were prepared to see what we saw. I think that's my experience of it. And I think a lot more preparation is necessary. So the search for meaning in life, this is the second characteristic. Uh, there's a tendency to, of making meaning out of terrible times, out of their own suffering. Basically, building bridges from present-day hardships to fuller, better constructed futures. Bridges make present man the present manageable. Basically, it can be seen as daydreaming. Now, Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist and Auschwitz survivor. Auschwitz was a concentration camp. So what happened was that this guy was working at the concentration camp, and in a second, he had this idea that, you know what? One day, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to lecture about this. And that sense of purpose gave him meaning, gave him a feeling that, okay, there is life after this. I'm going to survive. He had concrete goals, and this helped him rise above the suffering. Now, we earlier on talked about having the hard-nosed realism, but also here we're talking about having a dream. So both are possible, and I think having a survival purpose is really, really important. So case study, let's talk about Selma. Selma, obviously a fake name, uh, had repeated psychotic episodes over 10 years. She was undiagnosed, she wasn't diagnosed yet, but when she found out about her diagnosis, rather than saying, why did this happen to me? This is so awful, you know, my life was ruined. She just said, okay, it happened to other people, so why not me? And it was that ability to think about herself she was also a strong member of the church community and had strong family values. This later earned her a job at a big publishing company in the States. So she was able to overcome it, how? By having her strong beliefs and having an ability to make meaning out of her experience. So this can also be translated into organizations. We can talk about hospitals, banks, whatever. Uh, 
the success of these people and organizations by having meaning, a purpose beyond making money. It infuses an environment with meaning and offers ways to shape and interpret events. Religion can do that as well. Spirituality can give us ideas about, you know, how do we think about something? How do we believe in it? Why do we believe in it? And what's going to happen if that thing goes wrong? An example as well in business principles, like I just mentioned, uh, UPS has a noble purpose. Johnson & Johnson, another company, have a value system. Now, it's a very interesting. If you work within a system, you need to follow, from what the study says, the values of the system, because if you each have your own code and working together, it's going to cause problems. So this is a bit of a problematic idea. So your decisions and actions may conflict and call into doubt the survival of their organization. And this is what happens, you know, when you work within a specific umbrella, like working in a hospital with its own set of rules and ethics. And this can differ from hospital to hospital, as you guys know. So <clears throat> I think it's very important for us to think about, perhaps for the future, developing a code of ethics, developing a way of being in these hospitals that is indicate that, you know, relates to the hospital itself. There's also the third characteristic, unique ability to make use of opportunities. Grab what you can. In the concentration camps, some of the people who survived were the ones that were able to take you know, a piece of wire that was on the floor or to grab something that they could then use to escape to do something with. So we talked about resilience. Now let's talk about resources. This overlaps a bit with coping strategies. So I'm going to talk about this briefly now. Uh, tools we have at our disposal, self-care, this includes timeout and meditation, boundary setting, organizing feelings, managing relationships, support systems and work environments, increasing self-awareness, whether through therapy, journal writing, reading, and also feeling safe in the workplace. I can imagine that different hospitals can feel safer or less safe. Okay, if you can slowly open your eyes and tell me what came up for you. What was it like? Yeah, right? I had this exercise done on me in class while I was in doing my PhD and I was like, really? <laughs> Breathing? <laughs> yeah, it feels really good and I think we always forget what it's like to breathe. This is a bit different from mindfulness. Sometimes you can do body scans with mindfulness and have, you know, I'm sure you guys have done it before, Zah, where you have like, you focus on every bit of your body and go down and then you go through a guided meditation. Okay, so we talked about resilience, we talked about resources, and now we're going to talk about recovery. And this is where I bring in my therapist training uh, examples, basically. So as we were becoming therapists, we, were going to, we had to do a lot of work on self-awareness. We had to know what's going on with us, our history, how that works, what issues we bring, which clients we would have difficulty working with. Sometimes some clients or some psychologists or psychotherapists aren't the right fit. And I think it's important sometimes to acknowledge that. Maybe there is a problem that's history related or something like that. And what I think and what I've been trained to think is that to acknowledge that and work on it is far better than pretending to think it's fine. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to do this. I'm going to ace it. I'm going to work with this client to realize, okay, I need to talk about this in supervision. This is why supervision, whatever level you are at as a therapist is so important. And so I think it's very important to, to still work through past and present issues while practicing in a mental health profession or even as a student to make sure you are safe, safe emotionally, safe psychologically. Uh, psychological and keeping self safe is very important and it ties in with coping strategies yet again. 
So we've got common stress-related issues, compassion fatigue, burnout, uh, secondary traumatic stress, and PTSD. Also predisposition to other mental illnesses like depression and anxiety. So what is compassion fatigue? We hear this word a lot, and I think I'm really going to focus on it because I've seen it in hospitals, and I see it in the therapy centers as well. In hospital, you know, it's pancreatitis, bed five, um, you know, appendectomy, bed six. And with some therapy centers, like I've seen that, oh, that's the patient or the client with this, and that's the client with this. And it's so important to realize that we need to look after ourselves so we don't stop seeing people as people. So what is it? It's a state of exhaustion and dysfunction biologically, psychologically, and socially as a result of prolonged exposure to companion stress and all invokes. So with compassion fatigue, it's trauma from, re from working with a person who is traumatized rather than trauma from a traumatic event. That's completely different. So what are the attributes of, com of uh, compassion fatigue? It's an established relationship between caregiver and patient or client associated with the caregiving role and the psychological and physical responses that it arouses. So a lot of people are like, good, feel what the other person is feeling, go through what they're feeling. But if I'm not safe and I don't have my emotional boundaries and I haven't worked out my issues, this is going to affect me. And we also have to talk about system issues or organizational factors, physical and emotionally demanding assignments and extra work days, you know, with less sleep, less support, we're bound to be more susceptible to compassion fatigue. So empathy as well is vital to the development of CF. So the caregiver must have the ability to perceive and understand what their patient client is experiencing and be able to communicate this understanding. So like I said, you know, being able to step in their shoes, that's important. There is another book that they call, you know, the curse of empathy. It's seen as a wonderful thing to be in someone else's shoes until you don't have the protection that you need. And that's when it can cause problems. So the psychological response to the conflicting elements of empathy and suffering provides the foundation for ongoing stress and development, like I just said. CF results from the change in empathic ability of the caregiver in reaction to the prolonged and overwhelming stress of caregiving. However, there is a question that maybe this is protective. You know, if we work in a healthcare environment, we're working with people who are severely distressed, emotionally, physically, psychologically, that is also very stressful for people who work in that environment. Maybe it's safer. I, I like to turn the discussion around. Maybe it's safer for us to take a distance and call them by perhaps something that isn't their name. I'm not advocating this. I don't think it's right or wrong, but I'm just wondering about the survival element to it. Yes. You know, I want to be optimistic and say, of course not. We should know everybody and say their name and know their stories. And that's what I do try to do in my work. Um, I don't know the answer to this, to be honest with you. It's quite problematic, isn't it? you tell a patient that you have a disorder? And when you that information for the sake of the client? Well, see, that's the interesting thing, because in my job, I don't diagnose. You guys do, so it's tougher, I think. 
with me I just say oh you know you might have problems and um, you know if, if they do come to us diagnosed I would say okay so this is the situation use that as a sort of framework rather than your borderline but that's therapy so it's completely different now Yeah. And usually I, I make sure that I know the patient's name. Yeah. I go with the on calls, I go ask, tell him, uh, patient, I don't know, he's not my patient. What's his name? I go check the file. Hi, plan, hi, plan. That's really amazing. It, it, uh, establish a connection between you and the patient. To be devil's advocate, yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, but yeah, if people have, like Dr. Ibrahim was saying, 200 patients, that's hard. I, I, don't, I don't know the answer. No, no, no. It's easy. No. <laughs> I yeah. They are totally, and this is why like discussions like this are important. At each devil's advocate, but I think we can, when we're honest about how we feel, we can work it. It's like when some parents hate their children. Okay, sometimes in our culture, we're like, <gasps> you're a bad mother, you're a bad father. No, I, yeah, but hate is natural. And I think when we talk through our hate and assimilate it, we're able to feel love. So it's, it's kind of similar, like talking about these difficult emotions and being honest, like you said, like you have compassion fatigue, you're like, okay, let's talk about it. I think it's Yeah. You're, you're taking care of everyone, but you're not taking care of yourself. Yes. So it's protective in, in terms of yeah, yeah, thinking, oh, stop. Something yes. Is happening. Yes. Something That's very true. So we're going to talk about burnout for a bit. Uh, burnout is different to compassion fatigue. And I thought that was quite interesting because before I was always like, you know, burnout, compassion Reduce stamina. Are you feeling overwhelmed? Are you too tired? Just can't take it. Work harder. Now, these are all like hidden in conversation, you know, when people burn out or don't do well, you get these like little messages like, oh, you know, you didn't do like more. <laughs> and I think that's really hard to hear. And it's important to realize what your level of stamina is. It can be worked on, but it's not a weakness. It's about how you work. And like secondary traumatic stress, it arises from several failed survival strategies. Burnout, unlike uh, STS, arises from an assertiveness goal achievement response. It occurs when an individual cannot achieve his or her goals. So this results in frustration, sense of loss of control, increased willful efforts, and diminishing morale. You just can't do it. You're trying, you're trying, you're trying, and it's just not working out. Now, secondary traumatic stress, like burnout, is from separate failed survivor strategies. Now this arises from a rescue caretaking response and occurs when an individual cannot rescue or save someone from harm and this results in guilt and distress. So both um, burnout and STS need to be mediated by compassion satisfaction to prevent CF from occurring. So if they occur at the same time, they converge and you do get compassion fatigue. However, when you've got a thing called compassion satisfaction, that can be preventative. 
So what do we need from ourselves? We need to get educated. We need to practice self-care, set emotional boundaries, engage in outside hobbies, keep a journal, boost resiliency. Uh, resiliency, as we've gone over the other studies, there are ways in which we can improve resiliency through increased reading, through therapy, through all these things, they can really help. And we need positive coping strategies, workplace strategies, and to seek personal therapy when we need it. It's getting more common now for people to go to therapy. It's not the taboo that everyone thought. And throughout my time here, I've been here for a year, I've noticed a massive surge in mental health awareness through different campaigns, through the Kuwait Psychiatric Society. It's really different right now. So this is what do we need from ourselves. What do we need from an organization? What do we need from hospitals or clinics or places that we work? We need health and safety protocols. Now I had an encounter with a client of mine and there was an emergency and quite frankly there was no protocols to what to do and this was very hard because I think I felt the need to, to save to do something but I didn't have the tools to do it I managed to get people together and they were an amazing help and it did work but had I not known anyone else I don't know how that would have turned out so I think it's very important to have health and safety protocols we need to all be trained in verbal de-escalation. We were talking about this last time, and some other doctors were saying that, I don't know if this is the case right now, that there isn't much formal training on verbal de-escalation and how to deal with emergencies and violence. Flexible working hours. Now, this is a bit controversial, men and women equal. I know that, obviously, women have other responsibilities, but al-khafarat, I hear, are different from men and women. Are they? Sir? Yeah, and that's, that's hard. Yeah. 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 Hey, that's, yeah, that, that's, uh, that makes sense, actually. And I'm a woman, and I'd really love to have less khafara. <laughs> yeah, it isn't fair. Exactly, exactly. Same thing, see an engagement ring. I heard about this from a colleague. Um, you know, they think maybe she wouldn't be suited for a surgical post. So there is that feeling amongst it, you know. Supportive management, um, psychoeducation, sense of community and support network. Now this is something that I think we really can start to foster. In the UK they have a tea and empathy group. They love their tea. <laughs> so they have a Facebook group, anyone who's going through anything mentally difficult, and you can be anonymous if you want, and you can just have a discussion, and people will come and say, you know, it's okay. I've been through that too. There is that fear, though, if you do identify yourself that you just can't cut it, you know? And even if you can, there is that fear that people will be like, oh, you know, she's complaining, she can't do the job, or he's complaining. He can't. You can do the job, but you need to talk about your difficulties. That's normal. And to develop a code of ethics, you know, um, the GMC in the UK, they have a code of ethics 
the BACP British Association for Counseling, it's like they have a code of ethics that um, works for Britain. We need to create a code of ethics, I think, something for the future. And this is probably for people who are more senior to us. But, or, you know, we could be, we could start to do something like that that protects us. So, questions and discussions. <laughs>